Hebrews chapter 12. It's great to be with you. It's good to see you. It was a fast week for me for some reason. Terry and I were walking out on Friday and she said, uh, it's been a short week. And I said, yeah, it feels like it. I don't know why, but I was trying to remember what happened through the week at that point in time and my brain wasn't remembering much, but it's just been kind of a fast week. And I'm feeling a little out of sorts this morning because um, my lovely wife, Terry, is down with the cold. And so she stayed home and I'm always discombobulated when she's not out there and she's not walking in with me. Things just feel out of sorts. So um, I, I don't know that's a good thing, but because uh, I'm not supposed to be dependent upon her. But I find myself in that category often. But uh, um, hopefully I won't fall apart. And I just want to say again this morning to be, continue to be in prayer for uh, Anthony, uh, not Anthony, for Anthony's family. Anthony's great. He's doing really well. But for Anthony's family, uh, as I was thinking this morning about not having my wife here, I was thinking of Elizabeth not having her husband here and Isaac not having his father here. And uh, uh, so just con- don't forget, it's only been a week Um, continue to be in prayer for them. Our lives move on. Um, Their lives are anchored in Jesus, but they have uh, something here now that is different. I I often think, for some reason, it comes back to my mind over and over again, but um, Adams are here this morning, but I'm not saying it because they are, but the morning that John's father, Tom, passed away, I remember driving over to the funeral that morning early, driving over to the church to get ready for things. And I was, you guys, they know Highway 63 where you go in front of the school. And uh, I was driving right in that range and there were cars coming from the other direction. And I was looking at the cars coming, the people in the cars coming from the other direction. And I was thinking, they're on their way to places. They are doing things this morning they don't realize their hearts are hurting. And and there are people who are passing us every moment that their hearts hurt. And we don't realize it. And uh, and so particularly when we know someone that has lost a loved one, the Andersons um, and others in our lives, continue to pray for them. And the Eilers, uh, their lives do not just go on. There is a loss. And so it's important for us to continue to care and minister to those people who are in our lives and and to express love to them. This morning in Hebrews 12, we're going to finish up this section that we've been on now for a few weeks. And uh, that is verses 12 to 17. It's our third week, I think, in this section. And I want us to read that entire portion again, Hebrews 12, 12 to 17. And then this morning we're going to look at verses 15 to 17 and finish this up before we come to verses 18 where we talk about two different mountains and the kingdom that God has brought us to be a part of. But if you would follow along as I read verses 12 to 17 of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, Lift lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame 
may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And I want to just put these words in here so we have the flow. So let me start over again in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I want to begin this morning by reading part of a newspaper article from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, It is a part, what I'm going to read is part of one person's account of running in the 1978 Boston Marathon, 1978. That's when Terry graduated from high school and I had, I was approaching my senior year. I'm younger than her, in case you didn't know that. I always remind her that actually, until my birthday comes, from her birthday to my birthday, she's two years older than me. And then I catch up to her and she's only one year older than me for two months. But uh, uh, this was way back you know, before there was electricity. The runner's name was Art Carney. He was a writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he ran in the race and then wrote his story of running in the race. And at this point, he's at a particular place, 20 miles in the race, where I pick up with this. By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half dollar sized blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. Now though, the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. One, two, one, two, one, two, right, left, right, left, right, left. I keep watching my feet move, one after the other, hypnotized by the rhythm and the passage of the asphalt below. Shoulder cramps, leaden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach, stop, and I'll keep moving, must finish. Someone listening to A radio on the sideline reports that the race is over. Six miles ahead of me, Bill Rogers has won again. His ordeal is done, but the most intense of my own is about to begin. Heartbreak Hill. The last, the longest, and the steepest, a half-mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and faltering. Hundreds of people stand along the hill watching urging the joggers to jog, the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, the runners to speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. 
The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically to the ground, trudge alone in their bare feet, holding in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up to help each other, limping along, arm in arm, like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Every time I've read that, I can't escape the agony of the runner, and I can't escape the parallel to Hebrews 12. When I read Six Miles Away, Bill Rogers has won again, I think of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him finished. And I can't help but emotionally be moved in the last paragraph, realizing that I have reached a point in life where I'm not that far from the finish and feeling often like there are many around me who are limping along arm in arm like maimed and battle-weary soldiers returning from the front. Using that imagery, the imagery of a long-distance race to illustrate the reality of pursuing faithfulness to God in the Christian life. The writer of Hebrews has constantly, continually throughout this letter encouraged us to endure. It is a key word in this letter. Endure. Comes up over and over again. Some people want to hear the preacher get up and say, life's going to be good. You can do it. This is a wonderful thing. Knowing Jesus makes everything better and life is going to be good because of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says, endure. Endure. It's a word that Christians do not want to hear on Sunday morning because it's not an encouraging word. All the things that are implied in that word endure cause some to say, I don't want to hear that. Tell me it's going to get better. To which I respond, it is going to get better, but not necessarily now. But tell me this life is going to be better. And my response to that would be, in kinder ways of saying it one-on-one, that's not what the message of Hebrews says. It says endure. Because it is a long distance, grueling race. You may remember again that back in chapter 11 we were presented with the Old Testament saints so that we might understand that it is possible to endure. It is possible to successfully, by faith in the person and promises of God, live and die in faithful obedience to the Heavenly Father. We love the stories in the first part of Hebrews 11, and I pointed that out when we were there. We love to hear the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Moses and the success that seemed to come to all those people, but the writer of Hebrews doesn't let us end there. He ends it with listing all the people 
who died in faith, who were sawn in half, who did not experience their best life now. And by saying that, someone might say, ah, you're talking about so-and-so, and I'm saying, no, I'm talking about Baptist churches where people that are filled with people looking for the best life now. And the writer of Hebrews says, endure. We're also told in chapter 12 then to look to Jesus as the ultimate example, who as the Son of God lived and died in faithful obedience to his heavenly Father. And in that context of suffering for obedience, to God. And in the context of Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who never wavered in his obedience to the Father, we have been told that our Father disciplines us. He trains us through the suffering we experience in this life. I was talking to, we had the Gospel Coalition pastors meeting here this week, and I was talking to a couple of pastors afterwards, and I told them, we were talking about the shifting that's going on in the community right now of churches, how people are shifting from place to place. And it's going on. I was talking to Jay Anderson uh, when he was here for Derek's funeral. He's a pastor in Michigan now. And I asked him, is that going on where you're at? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, just constant shifting between the churches of people out there right now. And I was talking to these guys and I said, you know, some people don't like my quirky, a couple of my quirky positions, so to speak, on, in the area of theology. And, and uh, I said, I've gotten to the point now where when, if someone's wanting to join the church that I actually sit down with them and say, I want you to know what I believe ahead of time so that six months into this, you're not going, I didn't know he was that far off base on those issues. So I sit down with them and talk with them and and one of the pastors who actually just retired, he's been in the community here for quite a while, afterwards he said, he said, can I ask you what your quirky positions are? And he's, a, he's become a good friend and really is an encourager to me every time I see him. So I trusted him and I said, sure, I'll tell you what they are. And so I, I laid them out and I, the first one I laid out on the law and he was just like, yeah, yeah. And he's reformed, he's Christian reformed. And he was like, yeah, I could see why somebody might not like that. Um, and then he said, what's the other one? And I said, oh, it's my view on uh, the discipline of God. And he said, oh, you mean that he trains us and it's not for our sin? And I, was, I just wanted to hug him. And I said, yes, yes. He said, yeah, yeah, some people think that's quirky, but I think you're right. But the idea that God is not after us is to encourage us while we suffer, while we experience suffering in this life. This process, we're told, gifts us with what we need most. This suffering that takes place through the gracious work of our Heavenly Father, who is good and righteous and loves us more than we could ever know. This suffering gifts us with the peaceful fruit of righteousness in us, making us more Christ-like internally and externally. It is not about self-discipline alone 
learning to avoid doing certain things so that I feel more righteous, but rather it is the work of God in me and my cooperation with that and my desire for that work that I become more like Christ inside, evidenced by how I interact and live externally. And another thing we've talked about in relation to this race is that it's not a competition. It never has been a competition. It never was a competition. If I may be a bit ahead of you spiritually, and when I say, I'm not saying I am, I'm just saying if I were more ahead of you spiritually, it's not because I have been a better runner in this race. We're not in a competition. The only position that really mattered was who finished first. And that doesn't matter on the basis of accolades for being the first one to cross the line. It matters because it was Jesus that finished first and he blazed the trail for us and made it possible for us to even be in this race. The awards are not for place. The awards are for finishing in this race. And therefore, we're told here in chapter 12 that it's not a competition, but rather a mutual cooperation. And I love that story that I read at the beginning because it points to that. I don't care about where I finish. If I see someone hurting on the path, I stop to help them move forward because it's a cooperative effort in the family of God. We've also learned that in this responsibility, our role is to help strengthen those who are spiritually, emotionally, and physically exhausted, those who are in danger of giving up. I am tired. My Facebook feed has become puppies and babies and, and a few spiritual things that are out there. But I am so tired of people posting about how they are getting rid of the negative people in their life. There's nobody left because we all have issues. It's going to be a lonely life if you get rid of all the negative people in your life. And where in the world did we get the idea from the Bible that we flee from people who have problems? And now as Christians in our culture, we are fleeing to other Christians. And we have very few friends who don't know Christ left in our lives. And I would just ask you, with whom do you have left to share the gospel? Jason Couts jokes that we're going to start a commune someday. And I always tell them it has to be someplace warm or I'm not going to be part of it. Uh, uh, That brings up all kinds of things that I'm not going to go into this morning. But we are beginning to see in Christian circles the idea of communes. And we're fleeing to gather in places away from people who are negative or don't agree with me politically or culturally or aren't Christians. We are to come alongside 
to strengthen those who are spiritually, emotionally, and physically exhausted. We don't avoid them. We run to them like paramedics at an accident because we know time is of the essence and we know that we have what they need in Christ. Together, we are to doggedly pursue peace and holiness together. Pursue peace. Remember that from last week? Pursue peace and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And now in verse 15, we're presented with another corporate responsibility. The writer says to us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it. And it's a collective idea. It's not that you make sure that your pastor sees to it. I've come to the point in my life that if someone comes to me in the future and says, do you know where so-and-so has been lately? My response is going to be, do you know where they've been lately? Because it's not just my job. It is your job. See to it. Do you know what's going on in so-and-so's life? Have you talked to them about what's going on in their life? It's taken me almost 20 years of pastoral ministry to get to that point, but all of a sudden it was just like, why? Why are we not all seeing to it? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's not talking about Christians sharing the gospel with unbelievers and and making sure they hear the grace of God. He is saying that as believers with fellow believers, we ensure that none of us fail to obtain the grace of God. And that word, see to it, is a fascinating word to me. It's a word that is used in two other places in the New Testament to speak of, speak of the role of elders, pastors. It is a word that elders have given to them that speaks of looking over, watching over people just as a shepherd watches over the flock of sheep that's been entrusted to him. But here the writer of Hebrews uses that word that is normally reserved for elders to speak of our responsibility with each other, to look over, to watch over, to be concerned about what's going on in the lives of other Christians in our orbit. It communicates an effort to be aware of what is happening in the lives of our brothers and sisters as we run the race set before us. And what is the primary thing here that he says that we are to focus on being aware of? And that is to ensure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does that mean? What does it mean 
that we are to be in each other's lives to make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Well, as it has been the case in much of Hebrews, we're faced with a couple of views. One interpretation, boiled down to its irreducible minimum, understands that to fail to obtain the grace of God is to make the choice to walk away from the faith, to deny Christ, to give oneself to the pursuit of the world, the cravings of the flesh, immorality, the cravings of the eyes, materialism, and finding one's identity in, and finding one's identity in self exaltation through these things. So where do you get that from? First John. All that is of the world is not of the Father. The cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes, and the boasting in what we have and who we are. Our generation, my generation, and the generations on down, you probably think I'm a baby boomer. By one year, I missed being a baby boomer. So I'm the next one down, whatever that was, generation whatever. This is why I'm just all confused. I'm, I'm not sure what generation. I'm married to a boomer and I'm in the next one and I'm just confused. But it doesn't matter what generation in the last 50 years, every generation that I've been alive in in the last 61 years has been about what I can accumulate, how I can satisfy myself, and I want you to know who I am and what I have. That is all that is of the world. And one view is that that is what's going on here when he talks about failing to obtain the grace of God, to pursue those things, to make those the pursuit of my life, and walk away from any profession of Christ. Um, I've known people like that. You've known people like that. Personally, I've been this far from that. And you know this story, or at least part of that story. The second view here argues for the idea of someone falling behind because they are not depending upon the grace of God to endure. This person does not quit externally. They still maintain a religious and moral persona, but inwardly they've checked out. There's no desire inwardly to become more like Christ, there's no desire inwardly to change. They've, they've got it put together on the outside and inwardly. They're, they're Pharisees, is the best you can say. Whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, rotting flesh and bones on the inside. And I've known people like that. I've known more people like that than I have the first one. And honestly, the first one is scarier to me as I look at the two. It's scarier to me to be in the first one than it is to be in the second one. Because the first one involves reputation. The second one, nobody really knows and I can pretend. But whichever it is, and I, I would lean more towards the second one because of the idea of a race being over this and the idea of someone in the race getting 
worn out spiritually and falling back. But whichever one it is, I think that there are some basic ideas related to our responsibilities in the race, regardless of which of those two views we hold. As I said earlier, the first responsibility that we have is to be aware of and intervene. You may remember the message I had a few weeks ago about intervention, that there are times for intervention and we've got to be involved in each other's lives. And that doesn't stop at prayer. And as I said earlier, it's not restricted to the elders. Everyone, everyone, everyone is to be aware of what is happening spiritually in the lives of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Second responsibility. And this is probably maybe the toughest one of what I'm going to say this morning. Second, no one can be aware of what's happening in your life if you're not honest and transparent with others regarding your spiritual weakness and your struggle with sin. No one. I have spent my entire life as part of one church or another. I was born to parents who were members at Oak Creek Baptist Church in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Church still exists today. We moved to Denver and I became involved in Sherilyn Baptist Church in Inglewood, Colorado. Later it became South Holly Baptist Church and that church still exists today. When I was 12 years old, my parents moved to South Sheridan Baptist Church, later became Red Rocks Baptist Church, and that church still exists today. I'm thankful that in my growing up years, from the time I was born to the time I was 25, that my, well, my parents were not responsible for me after a point, but I was part of three solid churches for all its faults and all their difficulties and for what I believe was false teaching in some of them. I'm thankful for the impact that the pastors had on me and the stability that was there. I never experienced a church split as a kid. I never experienced a change of pastors as a kid, except when we changed churches. The last church I was part of, the the pastor started that church as a kid, I, that what I was part of as a kid, he started that church and pastored it for 40 years. I'm thankful for that example. I'm thankful for, those, for that stability that God gave me. Terry and I left Denver. We moved to Wisconsin. We joined Faith Baptist Church. We were a part of that church for 12 years, and then we moved to help plant Grace Baptist Church. And we were part of that church until we left to come to Iowa where we were at fellowship and now we've been here. I'm thankful for that heritage that God has given me in relation to church stability. But one thing that I've seen over all those years is a whole lot of Pharisees. And one thing that I've been over those years is a Pharisee going to church with the plastered on smile, being inauthentic, 
putting on my religious garb, while inside I didn't have a heart for the things of the Lord. I had a heart for advancing up the ladders of the church, so to speak. I had a heart for being recognized as a good, solid Christian man. But there were far too many years where it was more about what I presented than it was who I am. And one day I came to realize that the church is supposed to be a place for Christians who are struggling and they walk together in the race helping one another to endure. But we can't do that if we're all putting on our Halloween Christian costumes every time we're around each other. And we're not honest about what's happening in our lives. I've had people say to me over the years, I don't want to hear about your problems when you get up to preach. I don't want to hear about what your struggles are. I only do that to try and foster an environment where people feel like they can be honest about what's going on in themselves. We cannot be aware of what's happening in each other's lives lives if we are not honest and transparent regarding our spiritual weakness and our struggle with sin. I'm in the process of reading a book. We're reading it together as pastors in the Gospel Coalition called Jesus, Gentle and Lowly. If you have not read the book, you need to read the book. I read the second half first, and and it's a long story why, but I read the second half first, and I'm going back to read the first half. It's written by a man named Dane Ortland, and he has a new book that just came out called How Does God Change Us? And I just got the book yesterday. I had read some quotes from the book, but he says this in How Does God Change Us? We consign ourselves to plateaued growth in Christ if we yield to pride and fear and hide our sins. We grow as we own up to being real sinners, not theoretical sinners. All of us as Christians acknowledge generally that we are sinners. Isn't that true? We're all, we're all fine to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. And, and I don't think we should ever lose sight of the fact that we're also saints in God's eyes. But the reality is we still sin. And it's not hard for us to say, I'm a sinner. But all of us as Christians acknowledge generally that we are sinners. Rarer is the Christian who opens up to another about exactly how he or she is a sinner. And is that not true? Exactly how we are a sinner. And I would take that even further to say, that there are certain sins that are considered okay, so to speak, in Christian circles. Not that they're okay to just be sinning, but they're okay to talk about those particular sins. But don't take it any further to these other outlier sins that if you're one of those, oh, oh, oh man. So we only talk, if we are going to try and be honest, we only talk about the ones that are acceptable to everybody else. 
But the writer goes on to say, but in this honesty, exactly how I am a sinner, in this honesty, life blossoms. Walking in the light is killing. This is such an important statement. Walking in the light is killing the preening and parading and the mask wearing, the veneer, the keeping up of appearances. Walking in the light is killing. You actively seek to kill the preening and parading, the mask wearing, the veneer, the keeping up of appearances. It is collapsing into transparencies. And then he goes on to say, the keeping up of appearances is an exhausting way to live. I've wondered sometimes if that's why we see so much church transfer out there. And by the way, I'm tired of people getting excited about churches simply because people are transferring into their church from another church. I don't get excited simply because someone in the city transfers to here. There's good reasons at times to do that. But let's not write books about how great we are as a church when most of the people who are coming into our church are believers. That's a whole other subject. I want to say this in relation to transparency. I'll be the first to admit that churches are often not a safe space to be transparent. I'm a pastor, again, almost 20 years now, and I was a lay pastor before I was paid to do this. Churches are often not safe spaces to be transparent, and that's sad. But knowing that, I would also say that I believe Northbrook to be a place where it is safe to be honest about who you are and the struggles that you have. Personally, I've been here seven and a half years. This summer will be eight years, which just blows my mind. So much has gone under the bridge, so to speak, in the last seven and a half years. But I found Northbrook to be a place to heal, where people pray for you and walk with you in your pain. And I, I want to I say this along with that. It is that kind of a place for people who say, I have a problem. I want to be done with this problem. And I want to move forward from this problem. There are a lot of people out there today who say Christians are judgmental. And I would agree with that on some level in a negative way. But I would also say there's a lot of those people who do not want to let go of their sin. They have no desire to let go of their sin. They actually brag about their sin and expect Christians to surround them and say, we love you in spite of your sin. I'm sorry, that's not the biblical model. What we're talking about here is Christians. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about Christians. And we're talking about Christians in a race, and that race is following Jesus and being faithful to our Father. And in that race, as Christians, we are transparent about our sin, but we also have to be 
repentant of our sin. I'm not calling for an environment where everybody says, yeah, I have this sin of beating my wife and, well, you know, it's a sin and you got to love me and walk with me in this. Well, you realize that's wrong because it's sin and it needs to change. Oh, you're judgmental. You don't love me. You don't want to walk with me. Hogwash. You're honest about it. And according to the Bible, you desire to be free from it. And with that person, we lovingly care for them and help them in their choice to be repentant and to be free from that sin. And that's what I found Northbrook to be. It's a place where people want to help you pursue holiness and want to help you to depend upon the Father's grace. And therefore, it is a wonderful place to be honest about what's going on in your life. On the flip side to that, this process of watching over one another does not mean, it does not mean that we become church police or the righteous squad or nitpicking at each other every time someone sins or makes different choices regarding issues of the conscience. I'm not the church police. I am not the captain of the church police. We do not have church police. We should not have a righteous squad who goes in their sanctimonious self-exaltation and says, you know, I love you. Okay. And because I love you, I have to talk to you about this problem you have in your life. You. And their beam in their eye is whacking you all over the head while they talk about the little tiny speck of dirt that's in your own eye. That's not what it's about. It's about ugly crying with people. It's about being in their lives. It's about expressing the grace of God. It's pointing them to Jesus. And in the meantime, we learn to practice the truth of 1 Peter 4, 8, that above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And the point in 1 Peter 8 is where the battle with sin exists, we encourage repentance and the pursuit of holiness. Where repentance exists, we practice forgiveness. Where failure is coupled with repentance, we forgive and we help each other up and we encourage others towards grace and holiness. And when repentance is linked to the grace-fueled pursuit of holiness, we are careful with our knowledge of the other person's sin. This practice, this pursuit, this helping requires intimacy of relationships. Intimacy is one reason this must involve everyone because no one can have intimate relationships with everyone. That is the fallacy of thinking it's the pastor's job to track everybody down and figure out what's going on in their life. I can't know you all well. And this isn't a big church. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a big proponent of big churches because the shepherd should know his sheep. 
And I struggle with that at this level. And especially right now with the elder situation, I've said to people, balls are getting dropped. And you guys are stepping up to help where you can, but there's places where you can't step up to help. And balls are getting dropped. When I was 30, I would have gone nuts with balls getting dropped. Today, it's kind of like, well, that's where God has me. I'm doing the best I can. It's not a criticism of you and your involvement in any way. It's just the way it is right now. It's a season. But even if we were in the best of situations with leadership right now, I can tell you that unless every one of you is an elder, we can't have intimate relationships with everybody in the church. It requires people to be in each other's lives. I have a few very close relationships in the church. Some people tell pastors not to do that. I happen to think Jesus did it, and you know I'm trying to be like Jesus. So he had Peter, James, and John, and he had one out of that bunch that he was very close with. But you've got to be in each other's lives, and that requires time and energy and a choice to do it. Oh, and it also requires presence. And what's the danger if we don't pursue one another in the race? Hmm. It's 1020. There's a danger if we don't pursue one another in the race. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave that for next week. Because it, it requires the time to talk about what the danger is. And it's a very serious danger if we're not fulfilling our role and seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. But I would just ask you, how present are you in the lives of other believers in this body? How present are you to even be aware of what's going on in their lives? Are you encouraging other people to pursue the grace of God, the holiness of God, and peace. You say, man, I don't, I don't have time. You don't understand my life and my schedule. That's part of living the Christian life, is organizing your schedule around the lives of your brothers and sisters. And if you don't have time for that, something's got to give. So, but you don't understand. Oh, yes, I do understand. I used to live 70 to 80 hours, working 70 to 80 hours a week. And being a basketball coach for the college and traveling. And being a deacon in my church. And being a lay pastor in my church. I would not do that again. But I do understand the pressures of life. And I do understand the choices that we have to make at times in order to be sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Not trying to make anybody feel guilty, not holding myself up as an example. 
I'm just saying I've been there. I spent 41 of my 61 years there, not here. I understand the pressure, but we have choices that we have to make in pursuing what God has for us as a body. So can I encourage you to think about those things and evaluate your lives and make sure no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your work of grace in our lives. And I, so many times, have thought in relation to the gospel for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus to unbelievers. I've wondered why you've chosen the weak and the foolish to be the ones who proclaim that when you could choose angels to come and proclaim the gospel. And I've wondered why at times you want us to be the ones that make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God when that already is what you're trying to do. Why don't you just take that over? And then I realized that you've chosen the weak and the foolish in both areas. You've chosen sinners to come alongside of sinners because it just gloriously displays your power to transform people. It, it displays the new creation that you're accomplishing in our hearts and our beings. And it points us back to the person of Jesus who walked on this dirt and lived among people to proclaim the gospel and encourage believers to become more like his Father. And I pray that you would help us to realize the incredible opportunity that you've given us to display your power at work in us and in the lives of those we love and know. May we be people who make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. May that be a hallmark of Northbrook. May that be what we're known for. And Father, help us to be open and honest about who we are, looking for help, admitting we need help, whether it's me or others, that we go forward together knowing and being known. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.